but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. It starts by John in this expression of just wonder and amazement that God would consider us his children. He says, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God. And we, looking back on this 2,000 years later, especially many of us who grew up hearing the truth that God loves us and is our Father from when we were little into our adulthood, we can cease to be amazed by that and forget that one of the revolutionary things that Jesus taught was that we could know the maker of everything as our Father. That the God who is so great and so grand above everything that we can see would also desire to have intimacy with us that we could have a relationship with him and know him and consider him our father prior to that no one would have felt comfortable to speak in such ways about the maker of the universe and so John is, even though Jesus has now been ascended back to the Father for decades, John is still amazed by this as he's thinking back on how revolutionary it was for Jesus himself to teach us that we can be God's children, that he was the unique Son of God, but as he has now come, he's made it possible for all of us to become children of God, and that we can live in the comfort that that is meant to provide us. We get glimpses of it in the Old Testament. You know, when David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That he makes me to lie down in green pastures, that he, he knows how to take care of me and provide for me. We see this glimpse of intimacy that David had with the Father that led to him writing all of these psalms. But it's taken then to an even deeper level and to a whole nother extent when Jesus teaches us that that good shepherd that we can long for is our father. That there is no request that we can't bring before him. There's nothing that we have to be ashamed of to communicate with him. And we are to receive the goodness of that in our lives. That he's going to take care of us. Like a good father, that doesn't mean he does whatever we ask him to do. That doesn't mean that we now become in charge of him. And so all he does is what we say. But it means that there's nothing we can't bring up before him. He already knows more about us than we know about ourselves. He knows how we're going to react to things. He knows what needs we're going to have 
when things become difficult. And it's a wonder and an amazing truth that we are now his children. We don't have to wait till heaven to begin to experience the goodness of that life with him. It can start now and continue. But I'll admit, at times, they can just be words that come out of my mouth that I, I'm not as amazed by anymore because I've heard it. And it takes some work to go back to a time when no one would have talked that way and how revolutionary it was and therefore is still supposed to be that we could consider him our father. And so we are supposed to be amazed by God's love, that he really, really does love us. But while we're amazed by his love, we're also supposed to be humbled by the work before us. Uh, just as he assures them that it's an amazing thing that God loves us in this way, he says, now it also means that the world is going to hate you like it hated me. And that means living this relationship with God is going to present challenges to us. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be humbled by that. And um, when I think of that as it applies to today, just as a whole, when you poll our public, uh, increasingly over the last several decades, less and less do we as a people trust the institutions that are over us. And some of you will say, you can't trust the media. They're all telling you a story. And some of you will say, you can't trust the government. They're telling you a story. And some of you say, you can't trust the universities. They... And you talk to different people and you'll find out there's a lot of suspicion of the institutions and structures and authorities that are over us. Now, what I know, though, as a pastor, is that some of that disdain is most directed towards the church. And we increasingly live in a day where people are suspicious of people from church. So that now pastors are starting to poll pretty similarly to used car salesmen in public polls in terms of how trustworthy they are. And I, I am a pastor, <laughs> and I want to say, I'm trustworthy. I don't think I'm perfect. You can probably find lots of ways I make mistakes, but no, there's, there's nothing that I'm trying to do that is to trick someone or to just get a deal out of someone uh, I know a bunch of other Christians. We get together at a church. They're, they're people who love one another and they love other people and they have their best intentions at heart. And though I see that and experience it, I realize that is not necessarily how other people view us. So when other people view us with suspicion, just like they did Jesus, and we want to try to make a good impression on them, we want to try to win them to what it is that we think and believe, that means our job is really difficult. This is really hard. You know, there's sometimes when you just don't know someone and you're learning about them, but you have no perceptions either way. You still have to take time to get to know someone. But when you're trying to win the respect of people who are suspicious of you, that becomes a lot harder. And John is writing to this church and saying, this amazing goodness that God loves you, that you're a part of this family, enjoy that, but don't lose sight of the fact that we have a lot of work in front of us. And just be humbled by it. Be humbled by the truth 
that the world hated Jesus, that the world is going to reject us. And he doesn't tell us that to then cause all of us to become angry and insulted. He says, I mean, just think back on Jesus. How did he handle that? How did he live and talk in a way that still tried to invite people into the kingdom? To let them know that he loved them and loved them to the point of dying for them. It's, it's hard and difficult work. It's humbling, but it's exactly what we're supposed to uh, do. It's also humbling because at verse 4 and on, continue, he talks about how if we're in this kingdom, we shouldn't be practicing sin anymore, which if you only jumped in at chapter 3, you would read this, and almost all of us would say, I don't think that describes me very well. <laughs> am I in that list? Like, am I? And if you started at chapter 1, you'd say, wait a minute, if anyone says they don't sin, you're a liar. Okay, wait, I need to remember that. He did say, if anyone says they never sin, that's a lie. Okay, but here in chapter 3, he's saying anyone who makes a practice of sinning is not really a child of God. So how do I put those things together? Like in chapter 1, it seemed pretty clear that we all struggle, we all sin. And here he's saying, if we're a part of this kingdom, if we're amazed by God's love, then we're not going to struggle. And one of the passages that I find helpful that's similar to this is Romans chapter 6, uh, where Paul is talking about sin and how none of us in hearing about God's grace or love should desire to keep on sinning. And there he talks about the domain of sin and the domain of righteousness. He's using language that's fairly similar to government. And I don't know how much you've had the experience of traveling internationally, but uh, our country is so large that you can go to lots of different parts of our country and they feel very different from one another. You know, you know when you're in the Deep South, and you know when you're in the Northeast, and you know when you're in the Midwest. There's all kinds of variety in our country. But I also know the moment I'm not in America anymore. Uh, even if it's just to the North. I have lots of family in Canada. And there's something about just crossing the border, and I'm like, I'm in a different land now. Let alone then when I fly to somewhere where no one speaks our language. And you just, okay, I know we have lots of variety in our country, and so what America looks like, or even being an American, can look very different. But there's enough of it, if you live in it, that you have this sense of it, and then when you're outside of it, sometimes is when you realize it the most, and it becomes very, very clear. And so when Paul talks in Romans 6 about Trans, being transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. And here, John is talking about no longer giving ourselves to sin and the enemy. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He's talking at a, at a more corporate sense. Like, we're not on that team anymore. We're on this team. We're not citizens of that country anymore. We're citizens of this country. And all of us, as citizens of this country we'll still have at times where we don't obey all the rules perfectly and we don't understand them all honestly. We still make mistakes along the way, but we either are or we aren't members and citizens. And if we belong under the authority of another nation, that's where our citizenship lies. And Jesus, in defeating the works of the devil and making us his children, has now included us in his kingdom. That is who we are. 
and we should desire as now representatives of that kingdom to live as faithfully according to what he teaches as possible. So all of us should desire to be better, should desire to sin less and less. But we also, just like we don't have to wait for heaven to enjoy our intimacy with God, we don't have to wait for heaven to claim our citizenship, that we are fully members of this new kingdom that is pure and righteous and holy. And it's a gift that we belong in it. And now, yes, every day we want to live that out more and more. But it's already true. If we are in his family, if we are his children, we are no longer children of the devil. We are no longer those who will keep on practice sinning and for whom sin will have the ultimate negative consequence of death and hell. He says we've been transferred from death into life. And that's true of all of us. But that should still humble us. <laughs> humble all of us to desire to live in that way. And then lastly, if we're amazed by his love and we're humbled by the work before us, it should cause all of us to then desire to love one another in deed and in truth. And one of the examples he, he gives right after he says that we should love one another is that we should not be like Cain. The first Example that he gives are the first siblings that we know of on the planet and their relationship with one another was not great. It was not strong. Uh, last night, uh, me and our three boys, we were playing cornhole. If we were playing cornhole for an hour, we were playing cornhole for like 10 minutes and we were arguing for 50 minutes <laughs> of what the rules are and who's allowed to stand where and how close you can get to throw things. And, and they get along pretty well, but it was yeah, look how easy it is to just start arguing and fighting and, and not liking what someone else is doing. And John gives this, he says, love one another. Don't be like Cain. Uh, realize that even in a family unit, we still come into it. Our hearts are still full of pride and selfishness. We want to do our own thing. We don't want other people to tell us what to do. We feel like every one of my sibling, or every one of my kids feels like their sibling is impinging on their rights and stuff and to get them to see that, no, there really is a way that they can love one another and they can care about each other and make choices for each other. We are supposed to love one another, he clarifies, in deed and in truth, not just in word or in talk. Which more often than not, for me as a parent, where this comes out is when I make them say sorry to one another. It's really easy to get someone to say I'm sorry. For them to show that they're sorry and to demonstrate that they're sorry is a whole other thing. And so John is saying, let us love one another, not just in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth, in how we act toward one another. Let's show our love that it's really real, that it's not just about us and our preferences, but it's about the whole and how we can care for one another. And if we do that well, the world will notice. Even though it hates us, it will eventually have to recognize that if we consistently love and deed and truth like Jesus did, that they have less and less reason to hate us. Uh, these were two different articles that I found were just an example of, uh, of just the environment that we're living in, but the truth that can come out if we're open to it. So the first, these are both research studies by the Pew Research Center about religion in America. 
One, it's also just curious of how headlines work. So the first one, in the U.S., the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. And so if you read this article, it will tell you how from 2009 to 2019, the percentage of people who affiliate with Christianity decreased by over 10%, which is a significant uh, number of people. But not just Christianity, other faiths. Like the category that seems to be growing the most and the quickest is those who are unaffiliated, uh, the nuns. Uh, not nuns like Catholic nuns. Uh, the no one. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say what I believe, and I don't know that I follow anyone but myself. That category is growing the most. And so people's willingness to affiliate with the faith is in significant decline. And if you just read this article, you can then have all kinds of conversations. Say, why is that happening? And what do we do to get more people to come back to church? And what do we do to help with this or that? And all of those are good conversations. It is enough of a drop that it's an important conversation to have. But same year, Pew Research Center, same institution, published this article. Religion's relationship to happiness, civic engagement, and health around the world. So now what this study tried to do was to separate those who are religiously affiliated and those who are religiously active. And the study found that to, be to affiliate with a religion doesn't change your life at all. To say you believe in Jesus, but you never go to church and you never read the Bible and you never pray, what do you know? It doesn't, it doesn't affect your life a whole lot. <laughs> but if you're committed to your faith, it is still one of the things that has the most amount of difference. And so here in this study, this is one of the findings. This analysis finds that in the U.S. and many countries around the world, regular participation in a religious community clearly is linked with higher levels of happiness and civic engagement, specifically voting in elections and joining community groups or other voluntary organizations. This may suggest that societies with declining levels of religious engagement, like the U.S., could be at risk in declines of personal and societal well-being. But the analysis finds comparatively little evidence that religious affiliation by itself is associated with greater likelihood of personal happiness or civic engagement. In other words, it can be documented that participating regularly in a community of faith is one of the leading indicators to then decide if someone will participate in other voluntary groups. Will someone volunteer at a homeless shelter? Will they donate blood? Will they, when no one has to, go out and vote and participate in their democracy? One of the leading indicators of being willing to go do that is to be willing to be actively engaged in your faith. And that activity leads to then people saying they have a greater sense of happiness and joy in life. Not that everything goes well, not that they don't ever get disease or sick, but if you live actively out your faith in deed and in truth with other people, and that gets you to do more things for other people, to volunteer and to participate and to share with the resources that you have, you find that life is more full. It's richer. When all of your life is about yourself and only what you prefer, it gets lonely pretty quickly. But when we take seriously the words of Jesus, that we are supposed to love one another and it's supposed to be visible. This is verse 17 of chapter 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, 
yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That is one of the most powerful rhetorical questions of the New Testament. For me, it's right up there with Jesus asking, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world but lose their soul? How can we have resources and gifts, see needs that exist, ignore them, and say that we love God? John's saying, you can't. So stop, don't. If you're amazed by God's love and you're humbled by the work that's before us, seek to live it out in every way you can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the amazing truth that we are your children. That you were willing to give of yourself to include us in your family even though we didn't ask for it, even though we didn't want it, even though we were part of those who rejected you and hated you. You were so gracious and humble in how you loved us into your kingdom. And so we pray you'd give us the same wisdom to know how in our day and age, when many people look on us with suspicion, who don't want to hear what we have to say, that we would think wisely and sacrificially about how to persuasively point them to the truth. Realizing that it is so much harder to live this life without you. There is such a lack of hope and peace when people aren't settled in who they are before you. And so we ask that you would use us as a community of faith who love one another here, who love all of our brothers and sisters that are a part of our church and worshiping us, with us from their homes, that in all the ways you enable us to do it, help us to love those outside of this church who do not know you and do not yet trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand now as we sing? Awesome. So first song here is uh, Shall I Fear And uh, I just want to remind you guys of a verse I really like it's Colossians 1.17 And it says um, He is before all things He is in all things And in him all things hold together So Friend of mine, the God of angel armies, 
living out the fruit of that spirit with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This will conclude our service this morning.